0: Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the promises of your word. We thank you for these affirmations of truth. We thank you for the security and certainty we have in Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King. Father, I thank you that we are firmly held in his hand and no one can take us out. I thank you for the promises that are ours in eternity That for all of us who are in Christ, we are already also seated with Christ in heavenly places. Our names are written indelibly in the Lamb's book of life. And one day, all of our faith will be sight. We thank you for that. Father, I thank you for the prayers of Jesus, who in divine wisdom and purpose determined to save us, And yet, leave us in this world, rescuing us from it so that we are in it but no longer of it. Yet, while we are here, we represent you. We represent your kingdom. We are an outpost to the nations, to our neighbors. So, Father, I pray that we would live rightly as your people. We would do what we're supposed to do, recognizing who we are in you, who you've made us to be. And, Father, that we'd be confident we'd be steadfast and we would persevere. Father, in these troubling times, these troubled times, never in our lifetimes has the need been greater for a church with a clear mission, with a certain voice, with a firm foundation. So Father, make us ever more a representative people of you. Give us great love for one another, affection for one another. Give us a sense of a purpose together. May each of us in this room finish well. and May we finish well together. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're beginning a series today in the book of 1 Timothy. And we'll carry that out to those two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, 1st and 2nd Timothy. And it's a very natural segue for us. If you've been with us for the majority of 2022, then you'll know as we were going through the book of Acts, you were introduced to a name. Among many names in the book of Acts was a young man named Timothy. One of the cities that we saw in Acts is a city called Ephesus. It was one of the great outbursts of the church, one of the great outposts of the church in, in the first century. The church that Paul founded under God's leadership and in that church as elders were established there one of them leading that church was Timothy so it's interesting to see we saw the big picture of Paul's life in ministry now we're gonna see some of the fruits of it some of the evidences of it and what Paul imparted to this young pastor and not just to this man because it's not just about his life in ministry this is not just a guidebook for those in ministry it's a guidebook for the church doing ministry together And so, rather uncreatively, I just simply entitled this series, A Biblically Shaped Church. Now, the reason I called it that is this. I'm afraid today, and this is sort of a starting proposition, a lot of churches today are increasingly shaped by other things than the Bible, shaped and pressured by their culture, shaped, developed out of tradition. Formed by people's preferences and opinions. And over time, those things, culture, tradition, preferences, opinions, begin to take on a weight that begins to border on, dare I say, sacred. So I want us to revisit our roots. I want us to revisit our foundations. What does it mean to be the people of God? And again, as I as I prayed, my thought is this: there's never been a time where that's been more necessary. For us to understand who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do in times just like this. What does that really look like for us? So I take you to the center of Paul's first letter to Timothy. Not starting in chapter 1, verse 1, but starting in chapter 1, I mean starting in chapter 3, verse 14. These two verses that I'm about to read are at the heart of Paul's writing to Timothy. Not just in the center of the book, but in the center of purpose. What does God define the church as? What does God direct the church to? Consider this summary statement these two verses. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Here's the basic premise. And it's the premise that everything you're going to hear over these next several weeks is going to be based on. This is our foundational statement regarding the church. premise is this. The source of the church's life is the Word of God. That's the source. God forms a people by His Word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the Word of Christ. God forms a people by His Word. God shapes a people by His Word. God commands and directs a people by His Word a church that is rooted in the word and not just giving lip service to it that's something i want to think about i think most of us could give nodding assent yes right the word of god that's the foundation of the church but is it the foundation of the people that make up the church is it our foundation not just the foundation of the church's services but the foundation of the church's life you and me and us together the foundation the source of a church's life is the word of god did you catch what paul said at the very beginning, I write these things to you. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I'm giving you what God desires for the sake of his people. This is the written word. And that's the foundation. That's the hope. I'm writing these things. So we should agree. Scripture alone is sufficient to define us and direct us in all matters of the church. How many of you would agree with that? Give me an amen to that. The church is defined and directed by Scripture alone. Now flowing from that is this, so if we understand what Scripture says about us, who we are, what we're supposed to do, then that's going to drive our activity. So what we do, whether it's collectively as a church or individually, what we do always springs from who we think we are. We always live out our sense of identity. This is how I see myself, and this is what I do. As a, as a husband, I do these things. As a father, I do these things. I do these things. As a pastor, I do these things. As a neighbor, as a friend, this is how I see myself, so this is how I live out my own sense of identity. Well, in the same way, every church lives out its own sense of identity. Now, the challenge to us is is this. When we come together and there are hundreds of us gathering, we often bring hundreds of different senses of identity. What do we see the church as? What do we think the church is for? How do we How do we define it? And so I want to put that in a personal question to you, not just a rhetorical one. How do you see the church? And I'm not talking about how you evaluate or rate us as a church. That's a different sort of question. I'm not talking about your Google review of Calvary Baptist Church. I'm talking about a bigger picture here. When you look at the Scriptures, and you look at your participation in what the Scriptures define, what's your picture, what's your definition of the church? If you've never given it careful thought, maybe not even conscious thought, I want you to do that. I want you to do that over these next several weeks because our aim is this. We want to look at the picture of Scripture and always be aligning ourselves to it. Always be reforming away from everything that has drawn us apart from it and getting us back to the true normal. of The church. How do you see the church? Is the church for you a purveyor of religious goods and services? In other words, is a church a place or a meeting or an entity, a group of people, whereby I can get things, information, um, encouragement, maybe some practical help, maybe prayer support, but I get things that will enhance my personal relationship with God. It'll help me be a better Christian. Is that how you see church? So we just distribute religious goods and services. And then you can walk through as if a cafeteria line and say, I need some of this. I could use a little more of that. I'm not really into that. I don't care much for that, but these things help me. I'll take the things that are valuable to me personally. I think a lot of people look at the church that way. They may never express it that way because they never thought it through, but their actions would say that's what their sense of identity is. Other people see the church sort of like a, like a club. I mean, a good club, a club with good purposes, good values, does some good things, but, but ultimately it's, it's a club. Um, by my membership, I acquire certain rights or privileges in that club. So I get to say what the colors of the wall will be like, or when we'll change the carpet, or who gets to do this, or who gets to do that, or I get to use the copy machine if I want to make copies for my business, or I get to borrow the folding tables because they know they've got lots of them over there, or I get to go to the gym for my kid's birthday party because I'm a member of that club. And that membership, which costs me very little, maybe... You know, a gift and offering plate here or there. Maybe at the new year, I'll throw something in. Maybe at the end of the year, I'll catch up a little bit for tax purposes. But I like to keep my name in there just in case I ever, <clears throat> I ever need it. I'm a member of a club. It's called Sam's Club. I don't particularly like going in there, to be honest with you. You know, for probably the same reasons that you don't. I never, now with just Sicilian I live in home, I rarely need that much of any one thing. So I don't particularly shop in there. Every now and then I'll go in there out of curiosity or something, and, you know, I might buy two gallons of peanut butter or something or, you know, 20 pounds of pork loin. But typically, no, here's the thing. I keep my membership there just in case. Just in case. Because I never know when I might want it. Never know when I might use it. Never know when I might want a new grill or a new cooler or a new sofa or Maybe some cheaper gasoline, but it's not critical to my life. Well, I think a lot of us see the church in similar sorts of ways. Club, membership, organization. But what does the Bible say? You see, information doesn't really drive our behavior. It's identity. So let's answer the question from this text. Who are we? Who are we then? Paul says it just so concisely. It's very, it's very pithy. He says, you're the church of the living God. A household of God, the household of God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Who are we? First thing Paul says about the church is that we are a household. We're a household. We're a household under the authority of a good father. We've been brought into a family. The scriptural term, theologically, that defines this, and probably one of the most beautiful statements of our salvation that you'll find, is adoption. We have been adopted into a family. He chose us. The beauty of adoption is that He chose us. He picked us out. He adopted us from every tribe and every tongue and every nation all over the earth. He calls out a people to Himself. And He makes us His family. He makes us sons and daughters. And as adopted people, we now are co-heirs with Jesus, joint heirs with the King. All the benefits that God affords to His Son, Jesus, He now affords to us. He treats us like he treats Jesus. He sees us like he sees Jesus. We're cloaked in the righteousness of Christ. We are under the authority now and in the family of a good father. So by God's grace, God who grants us repentance, as the Bible says, God who gifts us faith so we can exercise it, by his grace, we become sons and daughters. But remember this. When you become a Christian, you do become a son or daughter first. But you also, and necessarily, then become a brother and sister to every other son and daughter. And those two can't be separated. Now, one certainly comes first. By faith, I become a child of God. But when I do, necessarily, and absolutely, and inseparable or inseparable from the other, as I become a brother or a sister, I've been brought into a family. The church is a family. That's the way Paul describes it. That's the way the Holy Spirit gave Paul the words to describe it. We're a family, and there are two concepts here. As a family, we have an authority. Who's the authority of our family? The Father. The Father. Maybe the most um, praiseworthy statement about Jesus is he did whatever the Father told him to do. He always obeyed the Father. He always followed the Father. We have a Father who's good, and his words are good, and his directions are good for us. Two words, authority, but also relationship. God is not in the abstract. God is not disconnected from us. God is not unrelated to us. God is not simply a judge over us or a ruler over us. but God is a father to us who longs to give good gifts to us. But it's also a relationship that's not just in the, in the vertical plane, but in the horizontal plane. But now we're in relationship with one another. Something has happened to us that's created a relationship that by the very words of Jesus is more defining and more closer-knit than any other human relationship. Jesus says, who are my brothers and sisters? Those who do the will of the Father. When we come to Christ, this relationship that we have with Him puts us in a relationship with each other that necessarily now is actually closer than the blood ties we had apart from Christ. It's supernatural. It's something the world knows nothing of. That what unites us is not just our common heritage, our common geography, our common values or political perspectives, our, our, our common skin color or skin tones. What unites us across all lines? Christ. The blood of Christ, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that God's Spirit in us makes us his family. Number one, we're a household. Number two, he says this He says, You are a household of God, which is the church of the living God. The church defined, well, the church defines a Greek word called ecclesia. We are an ecclesia. I'll define that for you. What an ecclesia literally means that we often just simply render church in the scriptures, Ecclesia. we're an Ecclesia rescued from the kingdom of darkness. So by God's grace, again, who granted us repentance, he softened our hearts, he changed our thinking, he drew us to him, he gave us a gift of faith that we now exercise for our salvation. God's grace now has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and the dominion of sin. And As I prayed earlier, according to John chapter 17, when Jesus prayed, he prays for us now who are in this world, well, fundamentally, we are no longer of this world. We've been rescued from it. We're not in the kingdom of darkness anymore. We're no longer slaves to sin. We've been made a holy assembly unto God. That's what ecclesia is. Ecclesia is assembly. Literally, the word is assembly. The New Testament word translated into English as church means assembly. And when the scriptures speak of assembly, it speaks of two. It speaks of one assembly in heaven. We would call this the universal church, or the church invisible. It's every saint of every generation, every time and place, across denominational lines, cultural lines, regional lines, geographical lines, historical lines, every true believer in Christ, and every time and place makes up the church, capital C, church universal. is what we just affirmed. We believe in the universal church, the church invisible. There's one of those. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. No one comes to the Father but by me. The exclusivity of Christ who forms for himself a people called the church. There's one of those in eternity, but there are many of those on earth. Many churches, many assemblies of called out ones. This is the church local or the church visible. So to become a Christian is to become a member of the universal church. When you do that, God writes your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. He seats you in the heavenlies. Your place is secure. Revelation describes the vision of this church that John looked out and saw an assembly of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation all worshiping the king. But this universal church, this invisible church, has to have a local or visible presence. It looks like something in flesh and bone in person in the flesh in the flesh this ecclesia has a role it's to represent that eternal kingdom to be an outpost of it to be ambassadors of it or an embassy of it you know what an embassy excuse me my mic is slipping i'm about to get much louder now there we go you know what an embassy is if you're ever in a, another country and you need help you lose your passport or something happens to you legally Perhaps you get arrested or whatever it may be, you'll see got an embassy because that embassy represents the country that you're from. It's not the country itself, it's a representative there. Um, I can remember when we were traveling to um, our last trip to the Holy Land, for the first time we went to see the new embassy, relatively new, established there for a few years now in Jerusalem, the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. And to go there, it's just sort of a, it's a neat experience to be in a foreign place in the center of the world and see your flag flying. That's a representation of my country, my people. Well, in the same way, the church flies the flag of the kingdom of God. We're not heaven, but we're to represent the king of heaven. So when we preach and teach, we're speaking for that king and we're giving his word. When we pray, we're seeking the direction of or the power of or the forgiveness of or giving the praise towards that king. When we're talking to one another, we're encouraging one another as followers of that king to be faithful to that king and to that kingdom. In our ordinances, when we baptize someone, we're saying, we affirm you, we're giving you a license to the kingdom. We're giving you a passport, as it were, to say, you now are part of this kingdom too. We affirm this confession of faith that you've made. We see in you the fruits of of repentance that you genuinely desire to follow Christ, and we're giving earthly confirmation to say yes you're part of us too when we share the lord's supper with one another we're saying we who are many have now become one in christ we are a family we are a people we are called out ones that's ecclesia we've been called out we've been assembled too by the way real quick and i'll come to some practical implications in just a moment the idea of being called out means a gathering the church not just what it does or what's healthiest or best, or practical or valuable, but the church by its very definition is a people of God that gathers together. That's what the church is. That's why we um, as a church are, are careful with distributing even our services online. Now we have some folks that are infirm and can't be here. They can watch it. We have some folks that are homebound and are not able to join us again. They can watch it. Um, Sometimes people traveling say, can I get the feed because I'm going to be out of town for two or three weeks. I don't want to be disconnected. And they can watch it. But as a general rule, we're not conveying to the community at large, to the world, to people in general. Church is watching a program. Church is receiving the benefit of teaching. Church is enjoying some singing. Church is, by its very nature, a gathering of God's people. We come together as a people. We are an assembly. Number three, he says you are a pillar and buttress of the truth. Pillar and buttress. Those are physical terms. He says the church is a structure. And when I say structure, stick with me here, maybe put an asterisk somewhere. When I say structure, I'm not talking about the church as a building. I posted something the other day about you know, one of the myths I hear people saying all the time. Um, you know, I don't think we, we're required to go to the church. Church is about more than a building. What's well, it's... It's a non sequitur. It doesn't follow. There's no logic to it. None of us in this room, I hope, believe that the church is a building. God forbid if a tornado should sweep through the wiregrass and wipe out all of our buildings, we would yet remain a church. And what would we do? We would gather. We would send out a message in some way and say, bring your lawn chair or, or bring a, a towel to sit on or whatever you want But gather, we're going to be in such and such a place, or we're going to be in this field, or we're going to be in that building, or we're going to be here, or we're going to be there. No, we don't believe it's a building either. We just simply believe it's a little bit easier, wouldn't you agree, to gather in a building. You know, if you were here for Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, you know being in a building is far preferable than to not being in one, particularly when it's 20 degrees. No, we gather as a people, but it's not a physical building the Bible talks about. It's a building of living stones. That's the terminology that Paul uses, a building of living stones. In other words, God's an architect. He's a perfect builder. He's putting it together as he sees fit. He's assembling it with every new person that he adds to it. It's his church. He controls it. He owns it. He protects it. He ensures its success, and he builds it piece by piece. But this structure is founded on something. What it's founded on is the truth. Paul would write to the Ephesians. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Those words that God has given to his people. Healthy churches ought to be a pillar and buttress of the truth, Paul wrote to Timothy. What does this mean? In technical terms, it means that the church assumes the protection and the propagation of propositional revelation. Let me say that again. In technical terms, if we're to be a buttress and a pillar of the truth, it means we assume the protection of, we're going to guard it and keep it, The propagation of, we're going to express it and teach it, a propositional revelation. In other words, this is what God has said. These are propositional truths. This is not the idea of it's true to me. This is our truth. This is my truth. It's propositional truth. All people, all times, all places, it's true, propositional truth. That's Scripture. So the church has a unique responsibility that God has given it to uphold write teaching to maintain doctrine. And I want you to write this down for me if you're a note taker today, just for clarity's sake, because this word's going to pop up a lot in the coming months, both in smaller groups and also in corporate worship, the word doctrine. I know the word doctrine sometimes is a, a bit off-putting for some because it's a little bit scary. I'm not, you know, I'm not too doctrinally astute, or it seems cold or impersonal to others, or are divisive. Write the word doctrine. Put the word, or then put the symbol equals beside it, truth. That's what doctrine is. Doctrine is the formulation and communication of truth. What is true? What is right about God? What is right about us? What is right that Scripture teaches us? So we're a structure founded on the truth. Jude, verse 3, we must contend for the faith all the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. Listen, I, I hope you see this without me filling in all these gaps. Uh, sometimes I assume that your mind is going where mine goes, and, and I, don't, I know many people don't. like I, you know, Sometimes I'll tell Cecilia when we're having a conversation, she'll say, well, that's not what you said. I'll say, well, that's what I meant. Follow what I meant, not what I said. <laughs> so as you're listening to me, it'll really help you as you're listening to sermons this new year. Listen to what I mean, not what I say, okay? But what I mean is this. Look around. We're seeing evidence everywhere of churches, entire denominations, losing their grip on doctrine, on biblical truth. We're seeing denominations split wide open, not over opinions or feelings or emotions. It may be cloaked in those terms. But it's on doctrine. It's on truth. And we have a whole church culture that's predicated on emotionalism. Say things that make me feel good. Give me something I'll enjoy. Send me out in a positive way. And we're becoming increasingly adverse to truth. We don't like how it sits on us. We don't like how it hits us. We don't like how it lays heavy on us. But the church has a responsibility. And God didn't give this responsibility to seminaries or institutions. He didn't give it to scholars or theologians. He didn't give it to historians. He gave the responsibility of protecting and propagating the truth to churches. To churches. To stand on this, a pillar and a buttress. So, what is a local church? I want to borrow a little bit from an article written by Jonathan Lehman. You can read the entire article if you like simply by Googling Googling that. What is a local church? He says local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Now that's a bit clunky, he says, but notice the five parts of the definition, a group of Christians. That's what a church is. We're a group of Christians. We're people who belong to the universal, invisible church. We've been made a people by God, but we have a visible, tangible local representation of that we're a group of christians to a regular gathering you know last sunday we gathered for worship many most if not all of you were here on sunday there are members here we gathered but you know we didn't really gather for worship last sunday because it was christmas i'll let you in on a little secret that's not why we gathered we gathered for worship last sunday because it was sunday because it was the lord's day And that's what we do. We make it a habit. In fact, the Bible warns us against those who make it a habit of not gathering. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. Paul, well, maybe not Paul, someone wrote in Hebrews chapter 10. Don't don't let that become a habit of not gathering. We are a group of Christians, a regular gathering, a congregation-wide exercise of affirmation and oversight. What do you mean by affirmation and oversight? Sunday we witnessed a baptism. That testimony that was shared with elders, that testimony that was shared with you, via baptism, that proclamation of faith, you're giving affirmation to that person's faith statement saying, we accept what you say about Jesus. You have made a right confession of faith on the right person to confess faith in, Jesus Christ alone as, as Savior and Lord. And we affirm you as a brother and sister. We affirm one another's salvation when we share Lord's Supper when we pass those communion trays. And we have accountability for one another. We are each other's keepers. We are our brother's keepers. The purpose of officially representing Christ and his rule on earth. We gather in his name. So that when someone comes who's not a believer, someone who's not a Christian yet, what should they see? They should see a little taste of heaven. People who love the Lord. People who praise him and honor him. People who submit to him and trust him. People who seek their direction from him. People who encourage one another and live together as as family. They see all this. And we do this through the use of preaching and ordinances through these purposes. So what's the local church? It's the institution which Jesus created and authorized to pronounce the gospel of the kingdom. To affirm right professions of faith, gospel professors. To oversee their discipleship, to help them grow in Christ. And to expose imposters. When you see the church through a right lens, you recognize this is not something that you just simply join like a club. When you see the church through a biblical lens, you recognize this is something that I submit to. This is the design of God for the display of the gospel, for the sake of the nations, for the perseverance of us all as we work together to finish well. So what are we to do? That's our definition of who we are. What are we to do? Well, number one, as a family, we display the love of our Father by loving each other. By this will all men know that you're my disciples. The defining mark at the top of the list of followers of Christ is love for one another. By this will all men know that you're my disciples, that you belong to me. You didn't simply make a decision. You didn't simply pray a prayer. You're a disciple. You're a transformed follower of Christ. How will people know by the love you have for one another? What does this look like on a practical level? How do we move this beyond just this sort of fuzzy theoretical concept to practical well, it looks like this. It looks like people who are united in Christ. It looks like people who have the same mind, the same purpose. They're of one accord. We're working towards the same end. We don't always see things exactly the same. We're certainly not all at the same stages. And we're facing different challenges and temptations. But fundamentally, we're, we're united. We're in this together for the glory of God and for the good of each other. It is people who are unselfish and willing to sacrifice for each other. That means giving up something you have that someone else needs more. That means yielding your preferences to the needs of others. That means doing exactly what Scripture says. It means consciously considering others better than myself. How can I sacrificially and unselfishly care for one another? It means people who genuinely care about one another, not just theoretically. They're invested in each other. People's emotional health. How are people doing? Are we crying with those who cry, mourning with those who mourn, weeping with those who weep, or are we rejoicing with those who rejoice? Or are we emotionally investing in each other? Physically, the Bible makes a, a picture pretty clear of how the church takes care of itself, caring for one another. That should times become dire. None should go without in the body of Christ. We should share what we have with one another. And spiritually, Caring for and being invested in the spiritual life of each other. How are you doing, my brother? How are you doing, sister? How can I pray for you? What are you walking through right now? What are you up against? Sometimes it means loving each other enough to say hard things. Brother, you know that's sin. Brother, you can't do that. You can't live that way and call yourself a Christian. Friend, you, you, you've got to give that up. You've got to stop that. That's not what it means to be a follower of Christ. Friend, you can't, you can't be like that to your wife or to your children. Or, or you can't do business like that and be spurts in the name of Christ with, with dishonesty. You, you can't talk like that at work and have those kind of coarse conversations and call yourself a follower of Christ. You can't. It's holding each other accountable. It, it, it's also people who just go outside of their normal comfort zone. Uh, Let me go off on a tangent a little bit. I do have a clock in front of me. Don't worry Let me go off on a tangent just for a second talk about just something practical You know, I spoke earlier of what a church is. It's it's a it's a group of people brought together Supernaturally so that when you look around you say those people Wouldn't be connected with each other For any other reason if it weren't for Christ Because normally those groups would never intermingle. They wouldn't get together Whether it's because of socioeconomic situations, or occupations, or backgrounds, or whatever it may be, all the reasons that we have that cause us to naturally segregate, to just be with people that we think are like us, or with people who we think like us. Well, see, our salvation, the blood of Christ, destroys all of that, and brings us together, breaks down all those walls, and so that now you look around and say, man, look at those people, young and old, why would they ever care for one another. Why is that senior adult lady asking that 19-year-old college student, how can I pray for you? That doesn't happen out there in the world. Because of Christ. Why are those families sharing a meal with one another, helping each other take care of their kids? Because of Christ. Why are they visiting each other in the hospital? Why are those people who are so different coming together and sharing their lives together because of Christ? Now, what are some practical things that you can do to accomplish that in the new year? Here's a simple one. Next Sunday, when you come in for worship, sit somewhere different. Move around a little bit. Now, for me, it's nice to know where most of you who are regular attenders sit. Now, I'm not consciously scoring your attendance, but I do kind of know some points in the congregation. I know certain people sit in certain places. I, I, so I, that way, it helps me a little bit. If you're not there, I can say, hey, where's Curtis been? He's always right here at my right hand. He's the only person that speaks back to me when I say hello. (laughs) But even with that, I would encourage you, move around. Meet some people. Get outside of your small group. Get outside of that cluster. Your family is not a group of 10 or 12 or 16 that you sit in a classroom with. Your community is this room. It's these people. It's this church. It's this fellowship, young and old. Get outside of them. Move around get to know one another, pray for one another. One of the things we're working on, we're headlong, we're working on this as fast as we can, as hard as we can. It's one of the reasons we're trying to legitimize those membership roles is we want to put in your hands an updated, every time we do a members meeting, every quarter where we bring in new members or members go out, we want to put in your hands an updated membership directory, nothing fancy, nothing glossy, nothing Olin and mills just something in your hands so you can know who these people are, love them, pray for them, check up on them. Be part of them. We're a family loving each other. We'll talk about that more next week. Number two, as a called-out assembly, now again, the idea of called-out, we're called out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son, God's dear Son, out from the dominion of sin and Satan to the authority of King Jesus. As a called-out assembly, we display the gospel by living God-glorifying lives. I'll do this quickly for time's sake, but what does this look like? This means collectively we live in such a way that our faith. In fact, God himself is compelling. So when you gather for worship and you invite a friend or neighbor who's unchurched, no, our focal point will not be on that Sunday morning an outreach-driven crusade event. You won't find us singing, you know, top 40 pop songs, and you probably won't see a parade of athletes or politicians or influential people giving testimonies, what you will see week after week is God's people worshiping God. We're going to be singing songs about Him. We're going to be reading scriptures that speak to us from Him and about Him. We're going to be praying prayers of confession and adoration, thanks and petition. We're going to do the normal things that we do that make much of God with the hopes that when people gather with us, they will say, these people are legit, these people love the Lord, these people are serious about this, look at how they sing, look at how they praise, look at how they pray, look at how they hear the word and respond to it. Man, that's real, that's powerful, so that we live as a compelling community brought together by Christ. But also when we leave this place, we live distinctive lives. Our lives don't just look like everybody else's. We don't go out into the community. We don't go back to work and back to school and you just meld right back in. Living indistinctively so that no one knows that you're Christian. It means that you're displaying the effects of the gospel all the time. Good times, difficult times, painful times, financially challenging times, health-threatening times, personal crisis times. You're displaying faith and the gospel number three and as a building of living stones we promote and preserve sound doctrine i hit that very much already we promote and preserve sound doctrine what does that look like well obviously that looks like teaching the word but it's not just teaching it it's that we all trust in it to accomplish god's purposes Not, I've, I've been in church literally all my life. How many of you have the same testimony? I'm not saying I've been a Christian all my life. That's something different. I've been a Christian all the I mean, I've been in church all the years of my life, plus nine months. Prenatal, Southern Baptist. I've heard a lot of bad and boring sermons. Long, tedious. Some of them I've given myself. I've been on the receiving end as a member of a congregation all sorts of fads and trends. New approaches and new methodologies. I've been guilty of promulgating some of those myself. I want all of us to have a conscious sense of confidence that the Spirit of God works through the teaching of God's Word to accomplish His purposes. It's not God's Word plus something else. There's not an element that we're lacking. There's not a magic bullet that's going to draw the community to us. There's not a secret formula, a new methodology that's somehow going to cause people to suddenly begin to respond. It's the consistent attention given to the right teaching of the Word, whereby God's Spirit takes that Word and applies it to our hearts, teaching and trusting it. Preserving and promoting sound doctrine is not just through teaching, though, it's through singing. It's through singing doctrinally rich songs like you heard this morning. You know, it's probably been a while since you sang A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. 1527, Martin Luther wrote that. 1527, that's almost, do your math, it's almost 500 years ago. And consider the themes that we sang from five centuries ago, If those themes were necessary then, how much more so are they now? The sound teaching through singing, through praying. We try to be much more intentional as a church, and maybe you noticed this over 2022, of intentionally praying, not casually praying, but intentionally praying. Sometimes well-thought-out, well-formulated prayers, sometimes heartfelt prayers that people put to pen and paper to express confession or adoration. Or thanksgiving, or to make petitions known to God, but intentionally praying and involving more people in praying. Promoting and preserving sound doctrine, though, doesn't begin and end from the pulpit or from the Sunday morning service. It's you. It's you committing to reading the Word, studying it, handling it rightly, doing what it says, being doers of it. One of the simplest The most profound life change commitments you can make in this new year is to start a Bible reading plan and stick to it. Stick to it. This is not a commercial, it's just a tool. You don't have to use this one, there are lots of them. But we're putting one, it's on the website, we'll put it in the bulletin. It's a five day reading plan, it's loosely chronological. You're not going to get hung up in Leviticus in February. You can get interspersed throughout the scriptures, and you do it five days a week. That allows you a day to catch up if you miss something. That allows you some time on Saturday maybe to read the, the text for your life group discussion the next day, whatever it may be, but spend some time in the Word, studying. It also looks like this. It looks like us, you and me, amongst ourselves, with each other, saying the Word to each other. Saying the Word to each other. Speaking truth to one another, encouraging each other with the Word of God all the time. Jonathan Liebman uses the term until it reverberates. So it's just reverberating among us. And maybe it starts in the pulpits, happens in your life group, but it continues throughout the week as it just goes between us. Tim Lane is a pastor who was given um, an interview about the primacy of the Word. This is what he said in that interview. He said, The ministry of the Word doesn't stop with preaching. It continues throughout the church. The discipling ministry, the children's ministry, the student ministry, the missions work, the worship ministry, the friendships of families, all of this operates on the same page by being Word-oriented and Christ-centered. Elders and deacons take the Word into their work. Parents are learning to bring the Gospel and how they train their kids. Husbands and wives are thinking about the centrality of the Gospel as they relate to one another, and the list goes on and on and on. That's reverberation. That's who we are. We're God's family. We're called out to assemble, called out from this world to become a new assembly. We're a structure of the pillars and buttresses of the truth, and that's what we do. Here's a super helpful summary, and I'll leave you with this today. The New Hampshire Confession of Faith, circa 1833. Article 13. We believe that a visible church of Christ is a congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing the ordinances of Christ, that's baptism in the Lord's Supper, governed by His laws, and exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by His word, and that its only scriptural offices are bishops or pastors or bishops or pastors and deacons. Whose qualifications, claims, and duties are defined in the epistles to Timothy and Titus. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I pray that we would begin this new year well. We would start off, as it were, on the right foot, that our foundation would be solid, our premise would be right. God, our focus will be clear. So, Lord, renew us and reshape us and reform us. Make us into the people more and more so, more evidentially so that you created us to be. Father, may we do so much more in this new year than than just go to church. I pray that we would not do less than that. But I pray we would do more than that. I pray that we would be the church that we would embody kingdom life together, loving one another, encouraging one another, teaching one another, displaying the gospel for all those who don't know you yet, encouraging one another and being faithful together. And Father, you'd be glorified. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.